0: Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to London, where I speak with Manisha Rajesh about trains, slow travel, and her new book, Around the World in 80 Trains. She is a journalist and the author of Around India in 80 Trains work has appeared in Condé Traveler, The Guardian, Time Magazine, and The New York Times. And first, uh, a few updates. So there aren't a lot of updates to report. A few days ago, I went to Tampa to meet Matt Kepnes of Nomadic Matt fame while he was on tour promoting his new book, he agreed to come on the podcast to talk about his new book, so watch out for that episode to drop in the next few weeks. Hopefully, by the end of August, that will go live. I'm almost nearly done editing a manuscript that I've been working on lately. It's related to studying abroad, so I'm looking for a few sharp eyes to review the manuscript for some critical feedback. So if that sounds vaguely interesting, send me an email or slide into my DMs, as the young folks say on Twitter, and then we'll uh, be in touch. So that's about it for this week. So here is the conversation with Manisha Rajesh. Well, I am speaking with Manisha Rajesh about her new book, Around the World in 80 Trains. It's a fast-paced book, not just about the characters one meets in travel, but also about the, I guess, histories and cultures one encounters abroad and about the journey itself. So, um, Manisha, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So this, this book was published probably three months ago now. Um, And I I definitely want to talk about the book. um, But first, I would like to if that's okay with you kind of get into a little bit about your your background and your travel experience um, before we we go there. So could you tell us a little bit about about yourself? How do you see yourself? um, And how does writing kind of fit into your life?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I I trained as a journalist. Um, I, I actually read French at university, and then I went on to do a master's um, at City University in London. So I, I trained as a journalist, and I worked across quite a lot of different publications, doing feature writing, a bit of reporting, sub editing, copy editing, um, all sorts of different things, just to sort of get a feel for what I thought was was my sort of direction in in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was actually working at Time Magazine. Um, when I came up with the idea to do my first book, which was around India and 80 trains. Um, and it actually just came about because I was fact-checking a piece. And I read this article about how India's domestic airlines could connect 80 cities. Um, and so I pulled up a map and I had a look. Hmm. And I was just fascinated by you know, how many different cities there were that I had never heard of and how far these routes extended around the country um, because i i lived in india very briefly when i was about 9 years old uh, for just for 2 years because i was born and grew up in the uk mm-hmm. and my family and i moved back to india and then it didn't really work out so we came back and i had never really gone to india again after that certainly not for an extended period of time and i i always felt like there was a there was a book in there somewhere mm-hmm. and when i looked at this map i thought wow what a what a fantastic you know way to travel around but I thought, you know, it's a huge carbon footprint by traveling, you know, around India by 80 uh, planes. Right. And then I saw this, you know, this network all over the map, this this really fine, like, embroidery almost. And when I looked at the key, it said it was the Indian Railways. And it was absolutely magnificent. And it went everywhere you could imagine to the nooks and crannies of the country, you know, up mountains, right down the edges of every coast and into the villages that you know no other form of transport could get to. And I thought, well, how about, you know, traveling around India in 80 trains? And that's actually just that was how fast the idea for the first book came about. And a couple of months later I just I set off. I, I just took my savings and I bought an Indian rail pass for three months and I went off and I actually spent about four and a half months travelling around the length and breadth of the country by trains. Um and that became my first book. So after that travel writing travel writing became my sort of my, my stomping ground mm-hmm. and trains just became a part of everything that I did when I travelled and it wasn't conscious but I just found, you know, wherever I went I would I would hear hoots of trains and city centres and I'd think, Oh wow, I, you yes. know, let's go and check out somewhere. Mm-hmm. Let's just do a little day trip out and, and it became just part of the way I traveled. Um and so it, I guess it wasn't, you know, a, a big surprise to anyone that I was I was very ready to get back on the rails. Um, and so I ended up trying to come up with an idea for – not necessarily to, to replicate what I did in India, but to see if I could find you know a similar country where there was this color and energy and incredible stories from passengers on trains. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I decided that there was nowhere that could really match up to it, and I should just extend my remit and travel around the world by train.
0: Because
1: mm. also, I think I was – I was quite conscious that people have been sort of dismissing train travel recently and saying slow travel doesn't really have a place anymore. And, you know, people have budget airlines. They've got bullet trains. Everybody wants to get everywhere faster and more efficiently. And I just wasn't convinced by this. I I just felt like there's always going to be a love of slow travel and the romance of the railways must exist somewhere. And and that was my my basic premise of the book was to set out to find out whether they still existed for people.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're talking about slow and, and and fast travel. So what do you think some of the the benefits or pleasures um, associated with traveling slowly are?
1: Well, I think I think now you know because people just every everything we do just has to see, you know be faster and more efficient, and mm-hmm. you want high speed internet, and you know everything's quicker, but you sort of wonder what we're actually doing with all this time that we're saving. And I'm not sure that we are really maximizing it. And I feel like we're losing out a lot of things. And with travel especially, I think that that actual joy of the journey Mm -hmm. has got a little bit lost with the way that we travel now. And it's only really if people take gap years or go on extended, you know, round-the-world trips that you really get to embrace that again. And I found when I did my my round-the-world trip uh, by rail, you, the, the, for me, the, the kind of the holiday starts and the adventure starts from the moment I've got on that train. Mm-hmm. I don't have to wait to get to the city or whichever country I'm you know, heading to. It's it's there the minute you get on. Even arriving at the station, and you hear the new sound, the the passengers that you can observe, the food that you can smell. You know the the different compartments, what they look like, what the bedding is like. You know the conductors, all these huge personalities that you meet on board as well. Mm -hmm. You just you're never tired, you're never bored by what you see, and there's always something going on to fire your your imagination. And I think for me, that's that's a really important part of the travel. It's not just about where where you're ending up at the end. And and I think with with train travel for me specifically, it's it's one of those methods of transport that allows you to To whatever you want to do. And it doesn't really interfere with getting from A to B. So, you know, you can get on a train and you can read for the whole journey if you want to. You can catch up on, you know, Game of Thrones episodes that you've downloaded. You can sit in the doorway with a cup of tea. You can chat to your neighbors. You can go and sniff out the dining car. You can do anything you want and you will still get to your destination. And you almost don't even realize that you've spent all this time on board a train and. Yeah, You know, there's very few people who will tell you that they're bored and, you know, they're itching to get to their destination because there's, there's just so much to do and to see and people to talk to. Mm, and I found that, you know, most of the best the best stories that I got from my book and, and the adventures that I had took place on board rather than, you know, when I finally actually ended up my destination.
0: Mm. Yeah, you're so right about that. You know, when you think about uh, air travel, Passengers are are like cargo a little bit, right? And the the point of um, oh yeah, or one absolutely. of the pleasures of being on a plane is is not having to engage or not wanting to interact with <laughs> the person yeah. sitting next to you. Um I've been on a train, obviously a few, uh, you know, um, many times in the past. Never any uh, over any long distances like you have, um, but there is a different sense of um, liberty one has on a train when compared to traveling on an airplane.
1: Yeah. I mean, I almost, I think most people have a phobia when they're bored of Mm -hmm. who are we going to end up sitting and you start sort of heading to your seat you see the number approaching and you're looking thinking, oh God, please don't let that be (laughs) seat. But at least, you know, with with trains, you you move. If you, you know, you're more or less able to wander freely you can go and spend your whole journey in the dining car, you can lean out the door, you can, you can just shuffle around. Um, but more often than not, you you know you you're not really stuck next to one person or another and facing one direction. You've got a lovely compartment with five or six different people, and and they change. You know, over maybe a sort of seven or eight hour journey, you could be with so many different people rotating in and out of those seats. And that's the other bit that I used to love when I was on a really long overnight journey. You'd get into your berth, and you sort of two of them would still be empty. And you look at the door, just thinking, "One, of, you know, these new people are going to come in. And at some point, the narrative is going to change over mm-hmm. the next day, because no matter who comes in, you're going to get a different story from them. And they're going to have stuff to tell you that, you know, so different from the person that had that birth before. Um, and they can change. They, they 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 make your story something totally unique
0: mm. in a
1: way that you just don't get on planes.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, there's some references to your book, especially in the title, right, Around the World in 80 Days by uh, Jules Verne. Um, and I was wondering yeah. um, if, if that was just kind of like a marketing decision or if the writings of Jules Verne actually, um, or the, or the writings of other travel writers, people like Paul Theroux, who in his, you know, the great wa- railway bazaar, you know, writes yeah. about kind of the romance of the rail. So, like, do, do, you, do you have any literary influences?
1: Yeah, I guess. Honestly, I, I didn't really read a lot of travel um, before I did my books because also, you know, when I first set off to do my first book, it wasn't, I didn't specifically go to write a book about trains. It was, I wanted to write a a story about India and mm-hmm. what India was like in, you know, 20, I wrote it in 2012 um, and it was my to go back and reassess the country after I'd left it 20 years before. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really see it as a travel book when I went there. It was more about what I had found 20 years later. And it was just the railways that were the method by which I, I could get around the country. But the book became a sort of homage to the railways because I found just this beauty and this amazing... You know, sense of community, and it's like it was like a separate world that was on the railways that I had never realized existed. And even friends in India said to me, "You know, you, you've kind of travelled on these trains in a way that none of us ever had, and found out stuff that we didn't even know existed on our back doors." Um, and so I think because I suddenly discovered that I actually loved trains through my book, the next one just it it, it was just a nice goal. It it was a nice yeah. format around the world in eighty trains. It fitted nicely. It gave me a, a, a quite nice formula for, for how I wanted to travel. Because um, also, there were, I mean, there are there thousands and thousands of different trains that I could have picked, but having 80 just, it gave me a nice tight figure to, to limit it to. And actually, it sounded like a lot to a lot of people, but it, it really wasn't that many. And once I'd come up with 10 or 15 key journeys, like the Trans-Mongolian, uh, the Canadian, the, you know, the Pacific Starlight in the US and mm-hmm. some some really kind of signature train. Uh, I suddenly found that it, it was actually quite hard to then cut back the connecting journeys in between, and it was very easy to fill up, you know, all the all the connecting trains to make it eighty, and then bring me back to London. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. I mean, I, I certainly did read when when I was writing my first book. I did I did read Paul Theroux and I read you know Eric Newby was one of my favourites. He's just so funny more than anything and i've loved most of jeff dyer's books very entertaining and it was nice to read a sort of a very different uh, you know spectrum of, of travel writers but for the most part i found that i I couldn't really relate to them um and their perspectives on travel and i think that's because travel writing has has largely been dominated by white men it's, mm-hmm. it's always been the sort of you know their 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 preserve and I just I couldn't relate to that, and I there's a, there was often a tendency to sort of place themselves at the centre of this narrative, and you know write about the country purely through their own eyes and what they saw the minute they arrived, and they'd spend a week there and make their judgments and then leave. And I just for me, I, I I guess maybe there's an element of imposter syndrome there, but I didn't think what my opinions were were particularly valid when I arrived somewhere because you can't make a judgment after a week or even a month, about even a year maybe of being in a place. And I wanted perspectives of the people that I met and the people on the ground to come through and to allow their stories to be told rather than projecting my ideas about a place onto people. So I tried to keep myself sort of held back a little bit from... From the second book, um, and so you will find that I think a, a lot of the the chapters are very much told through the, the people that I met, and their stories come forward a lot more to paint the image of of what I could see there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, but it's but it is changing. I mean, there there are a lot of there are a lot more writers now um, coming forward with, you know, not specifically. It's difficult to put travel into a, you know a genre as such because. There are so many different books that you could say are travel. I mean, even even if you read Dickens, mm-hmm. you know, you you get taken back to a London that you've never been to before. You can't really even imagine, and and you're transported. You're still being taken away to a, a, a village or a town that you know you've never seen and you've never been in. And and I think travel writing it's very broad. It's a very very broad term now. I think.
0: Sure, sure. Um, a few a few things here. Um, I guess to to, to touch on out. Are you familiar with Monocle magazine?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So they have a um a podcast and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um it's a subset of one of their podcasts about magazine um writing and um they recently went to a hotel somewhere in London, um Bankside, something something like that. And uh, they're okay. the the hotel owner or manager had commissioned a bookshelf uh, with nothing but travel books. Oh, wow. And they were tasked with, um, you know, th- rethinking this notion of of travel narratives and travel books. Okay. So they have all types of um, different, I guess, genres of, of travel books, even, um, you know, narratives about space travel and kind of yeah. these introspective uh, narratives. So, I mean, I think... Oh, wow. Absolutely right. This idea of travel writing is quite broad, but I guess part of the the trouble that they had compiling this is that they didn't want it to be merely this uh, kind of collection of colonial exploits by white yeah, by white men. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I want to touch on the the race thing. I guess not not just the race and gender thing from the perspective of a writer, but also from the perspective of a, a traveler. Uh, I want to get there, but before yeah. before we like kind of go off in that direction. Um, you'd, you'd mentioned something about living in, in India and in Madras maybe for, for about two years when you were nine. Yeah. And you said it didn't work out. And I guess I was just wondering you know, yeah. what, why it didn't work out. And then if it didn't work out, why were you kind of compelled to go back and rediscover that as an adult?
1: Yeah. So my both my parents uh, are doctors and they only ever came over to the UK to train Mm-hmm. And their intention was never to stay. So after about fourteen years of us being here, uh, my dad decided to go back. And within, like, within six months—not even six months, three months probably—they just found that India was it wasn't home anymore. And they'd mm-hmm. always said, you know, we're going to be going back home to India. And then they realized when they reached there that home had changed, and home was now England. They they'd spent fourteen years of their life there. They'd had their kids there. They'd. And I think they didn't realise quite how much they'd got accustomed to living in England, that they just couldn't get used to being back in India again. And things had really changed in India for them as well. I mean, they left in the mid Mm seventies, and when they came back in the sort of early nineties, it was you know it's become extremely corrupt. Um, You know, everyone had to bribe everybody to just get very straightforward things done, like having a gas cylinder fitted in your kitchen or getting (laughs) milk coupons. You have to you have to pay everyone to get bumped up the list, and they would just. I guess there was a sense of naivety on their behalf that they thought India would still be this kind of lovely 1970s happy place. And people, people were very different. Uh, and even, you know, friends that they had worked with in the past had, had changed, and mm-hmm. the way people did things in the hospitals had changed. And my parents were just, they're very unsettled by it all. And I think also because my brother and I had been at school in the UK, we got very used to the schooling system, and it was very hard to adapt to the Indian schooling system and I had to catch up on sort of seven or eight years worth of Hindi and Sanskrit, mm-hmm. which is very tough. Um, and so finally, you know, there was the, I think it was just, there were a few incidents where my parents were just horrified by the level of corruption and just knowing that they weren't going to ever be able to adapt to that way of living. They just decided that the best place for all of us was just to come back. Uh, and so I think, you know, I, I struggled a bit. I, I I was, you know, I was bullied at school for having an English accent. Uh, and then when I got back to England, I was bullied for having an Indian accent. And it was, <laughs> it was, it was a very, it was a very, tu- it was an odd period for me. But I guess as kids, you just, you just take it on the chin and you don't give it much thought. But it, over about sort of 20 years, I, you know, I went back for holiday occasionally and for family weddings and things, but there was never an extended trip. I never really went back and sort of sunk my teeth into it. And I had, so many friends from university who'd gone back and done big gap years and spent months and months, you know, touring the Hippie Trail. And Mm -hmm. they'd always come back and tell me what a fantastic place it was and describe all these incredible monuments and beaches and forts and palaces. And I thought, you know, I, I would really love to go back and see all of this one day as a tourist. And so I just, that was why I decided to finally go. I thought, you know, 20 years has passed. It's enough time. Things have changed um you know and everyone's talking about you know india version 2.0 it's you know it's all taken off it's the you know the fastest growing democracy in the world and i was curious to see this just you know from everyone else's perspective so that's why i took myself off and decided to to see what i thought and and it was a good thing to do because i did cha- you know challenge a lot of my own prejudices about the country and managed to wrestle a lot of those old demons and mm-hmm. and come back actually having a much better feeling about the place Um, And I had a much better idea as well of where, you know, India is one of those places where you have to kind of, you do have to figure out where you fit into it and where it fits into you and it doesn't suit everybody. Um, But it was, it was definitely a very good thing to challenge myself with. Um, And I, and I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think one of the other things that was really important to me was to bring out a book that it didn't. Just a, just a different book from the kind of books that I've been seeing around a lot because like you just mentioned, you know, there's very much a tendency towards this post-colonial narrative with travel writing. And I used to keep reading articles about India that I I felt were very patronizing. There's this tendency to exoticize India and you would always see book covers with, you know, mangoes and women wearing bindis and saris and it would always be in the Ganges and everything seemed to be about either you know forced marriage or weddings or holy bathing. And I thought that there's a lot of, you know, 20 somethings working in tech and living in Bombay and wearing jeans. And you never hear about these people and you never get to hear mm-hmm. their voices. And I, I wanted to bring a book to market that would, you know, bring that side of things out instead of always seeing people in terms of the other and strange and exotic. And, and it was really nice to be able to do that as someone who is not entirely English, but also not entirely Indian either. And mm-hmm. I, I think I sort of straddled both nicely to be able to have the sort of insider-outsider view of seeing my country from, you know, I, I could understand nuance mm-hmm. in language and dialect and mannerisms and certain types of food that I just immediately understood. And, and also just the way you do things is, you know, very different from, you know, the way people do things abroad. But But equally, I could see it from a... A sort of outsider perspective and learn those, you know, different ways of doing things too. So it was, it was a challenge, but also a, a nice one to be able to do that and to give a nice measured approach to, to writing about India in a way that I didn't feel many people were doing. And hmm. I, I hope that I did that justice.
0: Hmm. The the question that comes to mind now is, you know, the West, we hear a lot of, well, in the media, we see a lot of, um, I guess, aggression towards women in in India. And this is a topic that your new book, your new book brings up. But it also has an element of, um, I guess, of race. So my my question is, like, um, I guess, how is traveling, not just in India, but around the world, um, not, not just as a woman, but a woman of color? How, how have you been able to kind of deal with that? What are your observations? Um, are Do they confirm what we see in the media or, or is it more complicated and nuanced?
1: It is a complex thing. And I think that's why when you sort of talked about reading travel writing before, I couldn't really relate to it because there was this, you know, travel writers, or well, men anyway, no matter what color they are, I think, sort of go into situations with a confidence that I think most women don't have. And you you sort of grow up knowing that when you walk into a strange space, you have, there's always a sort of small element of threat or danger or uncertainty, I think, um, that men just, I think they just, they don't understand and they can't relate to. And, you know, if you walk into a restaurant in suburban Russia Mm-hmm. as a as a white man, you won't be looked at in the same way that a black woman would be because they just don't see anybody like that there and I did feel very uncomfortable um a lot of the time in Russia, even though I did this time around I traveled with my you know then fiance now husband and he's also he's mixed race his his mum is Indonesian and his father was half English Lithuanian but at the same time, you could tell that people still looked at us with wariness um trepidation. And I think on both sides there was there was an element of you know who are you what are you doing here, why are you on this train why are you in our small town what are you doing, and and I could really sense it I could feel it in a way that I I don't in big cities you know traveling in mm-hmm. New York or living in London or living in Paris you you just you don't feel it in the same way because you see people around all the time who are you know so many different colours and you know genders and it, it's not something that you I'm fortunate enough not to think about but. Mm-hmm. As soon as you come out of that, you know, comfort zone and that bubble, I guess, that we live in, and you suddenly realize that actually you know, Eastern Europe is very, very white and people are very threatened by seeing people of color. Um, and I have heard some terrible stories from from black writers who said, you know, they will get approached in a restaurant and asked to... Fetch a menu without people realizing that they're they're not staffed. They're also staying at the hotel. Wow. And I know that, from, yeah, I've had a lot of, um, I had a couple of Nigerian friends who've had quite severe racial abuse in Delhi. And, and I know that Indians can be incredibly racist. They're, they're very discriminatory towards Northeast Indians who have facial features that are, you know, they look a lot more Chinese. They've, you know, got Tibetan. Influenced, they they have very Asiatic features, and when they come to Delhi, they are very very singled out. They're ostracised. They often get beaten up, and it's it's something that I I guess because I have a lot of friends who are um, people of colour, you hear a very different set of stories from people when they travel, and in fact, funnily enough, one of the one of the reviews that I got, which was the only review that was written by a woman for my book, um, she opened it by saying how demoralising it was to read a book by a woman who had taken her husband with her on the trip. Mm. Um, and it was quite striking to me because I thought that's coming from a position of white privilege where as a white woman you can travel around a lot more safely than I can and you have no concept of the fact that you could walk around in suburban Russia and get away with it and be fine. Uh, and you could you know vanish off into different places and, and be very well received because I think you know, on the other side of that post-colonial narrative, you still have people welcomed, you know, white people are still welcomed in with a, you know, with a little bit of that colonial attitude of being garlanded and put on a pedestal and people take pictures of them because they're a novelty. And you wouldn't understand what it's like to be a brown woman to turn up somewhere and not be viewed in that same way. And I was very aware of you know the way I have been received in certain places which is part of the reason why my husband came with me um but it certainly did open you know having him there did open doors to so many more places that I would probably not have ventured to on my own otherwise um and it it certainly gave me just a sort of comfort that I could just go out and do things on my own and not have to worry about it and even though we were we traveled together I still went off on my own and I did my own thing during the day and mm-hmm. we'd meet up in the evening and chat about what we'd been up to. So he certainly wasn't sort of, he wasn't by my side like a bodyguard the whole time. <laughs> um, but it also it, it also brought, um, this a kind of interesting dimension to travel because this, this concept of solo travel now is just something that I've read about a lot recently and it's something that I feel is very much directed at women to, you know, solo travel is really important, mm-hmm. why everyone should go traveling alone. And you don't really see a lot of pieces by men about their solo travel. And I feel, I do feel like it's quite a Western construct, this idea, because whenever you travel in India, you always see people in enormous groups. Families go out in groups mm-hmm. of 10 or 15. You have huge groups of college friends out together. Traveling alone is just, it's not really something people do. It's just, it's almost seemed like a very quite an alienating thing to do and you know why would you not want to travel with your friends or partner if you could and share those experiences and have fun together mm-hmm. and it is it, it is something that I did notice a lot in a lot of countries where they would sort of look at single travellers and think well, why are you doing this by yourself is it, is it because you have no friends to go with and, and they feel sad you know that there was a single woman on her own or oh, it's really sad that you're not married and in China they I remember a woman um, I think she was from North England somewhere who was on one of our trains and the student we were chatting to was saying how sad it was that she was by herself. And he felt terrible that she had nobody to be with. And that's, it was quite interesting for me that, you know, I, everywhere you travel, you know, in, in the West, it's not, it's not really a big deal when people travel on their own. But for, you know, in Asian cultures, there there was a real sort of sympathy towards her for being by herself. And mm-hmm. it was, it was it, it's very much something that I've considered a lot. And I think the nicest thing about just traveling with people is that you, you build memories together. You you see things in a different way when you're with somebody else, um, but also you, you certainly get to learn a lot about the other person when you're traveling. Because when you see someone at their lowest, when they're tired, right. or they're hungry, or they're ill, you you, you get to see the real person um, and who they really are. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very telling. And it's it's you know I think especially when you're about to marry that person, because it's a good <laughs> way of finding out it's what the, they're going to be like in the, the test. future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it it absolutely is. It's great. And when you're sharing a sort of six by eight compartment with someone for seven months, um, I think if you can sort of manage that and not kill each other, you're probably going to be okay mm-hmm. uh, from then on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Conversely, though, um, I, you know, solo travel, um, it's something that I I enjoy. But you know, it it gives you the opportunity to learn about yourself in a way that yeah, absolutely. And I and I
1: did it for. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I did it a lot. Even with my with my India trip, I, I set off with a photographer friend of a friend, but we, you know, we went our separate ways for various reasons. And the chunks of time I had on my own were, were just as valuable as when we were together. And it, it, like you said, you do, you find out, you find out a lot about yourself, about your ability to be alone, your, you know, your, what you're able to manage, what you're, you know, Challenge yourself, and and to you know just meeting people in a very strange place and taking yourself out of your comfort zone is 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 a, is a very important thing to do, I think. And and also, it's quite nice being on your own because you can just, you don't have to conform to anything. You can you can be whoever you want to be. You can you know your narrative can be whatever you want it to be. You can you can eat when you want. You can sleep when you want. You can you know you don't want to go and see tourist spots. You don't have to do that. It's 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 very liberating, and uh, yes, I do. I do actually think it's it's a great thing to do at various points, and I think it just suits you at different times of life. Um, travel, whether it's solo or or with people, or you know, the combination of.
0: Mm. I, I want to circle back, if you don't mind, to um, the the story that you gave about the reviewer. Um, I guess the, the oh yeah, the, the, the white woman. Um, and, and just, just to see if I understood you correctly. Um, so in in that conversation, uh, you had mentioned the difficulties of traveling around the world as a a woman of color, um, that, uh, a a Caucasian or a white woman doesn't necessarily understand. Um, and in traveling in India, um, as a woman of color, um, my question is, does that bestow some privilege that uh, a Caucasian woman might not have in India? Or is there still this notion of a white privilege in India because of the colonial past, looking perhaps at the, the Caucasian woman as um, economically superior or, you know, as a source of perhaps economic yeah. gain? Yeah. Is that...
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think... I think I, I can comment with India because I've been there enough now. Um, but I think when I was on my own traveling around, people were very friendly. They were really helpful because they recognized immediately that while I wasn't obviously, you know, Indian born and bred, I oh, was yeah. certainly, you know, one of them. And so they were they were really curious about what I was doing over there and why had I come back and, you know, what, everything. They wanted to know everything about my family and what had sort of compelled me to want to come and spend five months traveling around <laughs> the train, which was certainly not something that most, you know, women on their own were doing, um and they they were very kind, but equally, I did still feel i had moments where I wasn't very comfortable, and I had to go and you know take myself off into a hotel early in the evening and just stay there because I knew that it you know in quiet towns it just wasn't a place to wander around by myself if I had no one there to touch base with and you can sense it, and I think it's it's I find it awful that you know often the onus is placed on women to cover up and protect themselves and stay off the streets and not make eye contact but I had to be a realist as well and know that that was just the situation there and men in these smaller towns aren't used to seeing single women out by themselves and I just didn't want to invite any trouble and so unfortunately I did just have to sort of take most of those measures and from time to time I did think this is quite boring being in a hotel at 7 o'clock in the evening watching TV but it's just the better option for me right now if I'm by myself. Um, but I did find that equally, I felt very sorry for a lot of you know white women that were travelling around because they're still seen; they are still seen as you know exotic and exciting and and different, uh, especially when you're not in the big cities. And you would see people just being generally very curious. And and I think there is that interest of you know the the, the white overlord oh to some degree. Is you know they often. They're going to be very wealthy so children would always kind of migrate straight towards them and and you know I recently had a friend who went out to India with his partner uh, and they're a gay couple and he said that people just assumed that we were in a band we <laughs> were traveling together and he said they would always and he said they just wanted to take pictures of us at breakfast and they wanted to take pictures of us at lunch and he said at the station they just came towards us, you know, he, he's a hipster from, you know, from north, north, east London, but then they've both got their big beards, and he said people kept asking if we had been in a band, and I think there is still that fascination of, you know, what are, they, what are these white people doing out here, what are they doing here, they, they're so different to look at, and they do different things, and they wear different clothes, and people are always amused when they see them sweating over food, and <laughs> it, it's, there, there is still that the, the other, there is that sort of curiosity of the other, but for the most part, I found it non-threatening, um, and I haven't heard horror stories from friends. And I think a lot of women I know, single women, who've travelled quite comfortably in India uh, and felt quite safe there, and and that's a good thing. But obviously, I'm fully aware of you know the horror stories and mm-hmm. you know the issues that that can take place over there. And I think you just you do just have to be vigilant, unfortunately. And it's going to take a long time, and, and not just in India, world round it's going to take a while before we can, you know, women can just walk around absolutely safely and not have to be worried about themselves. Um, and, and it is a very unfortunate situation, but I think we just have to, you do have to be realistic uh, when you travel and take those you know, precautions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in, in the United States, we often hear the, the horror stories that take place uh, abroad Yeah, um, and we, you know, don't, put as much attention on the horror stories that occur, you know, at, at home. And so the irony being that just as many kind of, uh, bad things happen here at home as they do abroad, but we tend to, um, focus our attentions on the person on holiday or uh, in, in the United States, there's this big to do about, um, some deaths that have been occurring in the Dominican Republic. I don't know if you've heard about them, a yes, mm-hmm. if I
1: have actually.
0: So there's a, a big to do. And I mean, it's unfortunate that anyone um, died uh, abroad. But there are now questions and attention being placed on Caribbean travel um, in, in much the cool. same sorts of ways that... I don't know five, ten years ago that there were some some questions about traveling to places like Mexico as an inherently yeah. unsafe and uh, inherently dangerous mm. place. People are quick yeah. to come to conclusions about uh, about that. Um, but you know the beauty of, I guess of travel is you learn those fears typically are, are overstated or um, you know while everybody must be cautious abroad, you know typically those those fears and concerns are are overstated. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the focusing on your, on your book now, um, many of, I guess the American audience will understand this. Um, we have, we have a tendency to romanticize the European, uh, rail network, right? We, we think about, you know, backpacking in, in Europe and, you know, taking the Euro rail and doing all that, but your, your book starts, off in Europe and from what i understood uh Europe was disappointing and it was a, a letdown um could you explain what you think about the european rail network in particular well i think for
1: for what i was looking for it it came across as a letdown because you know i i wanted stories i wanted to meet passengers i wanted to find out things i wanted to see you know, incredible scenery from the windows. And I just I just didn't get that. I think because, you know, tra- the trains are fantastic. You know, don't let it be said that they're, that they're disappointing because they're, you know, they don't run or they don't work or they're inefficient. They are very efficient. In fact, too efficient. You know, there was no delay. There was no cancellation. I was never forced to sit and make conversation with my passengers because of delays where often some of the best adventures would happen, but you know they're very punctual. They're they're clean. They're very fast. They're you know excellent bullet trains, and 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 it was just it just all worked so smoothly that there was just nothing for me to see or you know really get my teeth into and engage with. Mm. And I think because you know it it was lovely. It just all worked very well, and but nobody wants to read about the stuff that just works well. It's very dull, and they want to read about the you know the breakdowns and the cancellations and the rickety trains and the you know the smells you can get through the through the broken windows, and European trains were great. There was nothing to comment on; they were just very vanilla. Um, and so after a few weeks, I thought, you know, I've seen what I needed to see. I've seen the beaches. I've, you know, been on the trains. I've had the lovely wine and then the foie gras. And, you know, I'm I'm ready for a proper adventure to start now. Um, and that's when I sort of took off and headed up towards Moscow. Um, but no, certainly wouldn't want your your listeners to be put off. Because um, if you have a if you have a Europe Rail Pass, it's it's a brilliant thing to 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 take if you just plan on staying in Europe and you have twenty eight days to for a month, I think it is. So sorry, twenty eight countries in a month, um, and that's obviously that's that's a, that's a huge amount of places to try and visit. But even if you pick four or five over a month, it's it's a great way to travel around because you can mm-hmm. you can pre-book your trains if you have a, a general idea of what your your route and your plan is going to be. But I think for for my book, for the nature of what it was, I didn't I didn't want to plan too much. I wanted to be quite sort of free to just hop on and off as and when I wanted. Um, and the rail pass doesn't really lend itself to that because you you do actually still have to make bookings, and if you then don't take that train, you have to sort of queue up to get it cancelled and refunded. And it was it was a real fast. So I um, <laughs> so yes, I did wrap it up fairly quickly and move on. Um, but otherwise, no. I've certainly used the past and um, before to travel around Europe and, and had a great time doing so. Could
0: you could you speak to us? Um, I mean, we don't have you know the 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 time to you know talk about every every leg of the journey. Um, but uh, really fascinating uh, leg to me was um, the one I guess across Russia and through I think Ulaanbaatar into into China. Yeah. Um and this is another famous route for for Western audiences. Um could you could you speak uh about your experiences on, on that leg?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the um the I think that most people sort of know of it as the Trans Siberian right. um train, which is I think the longest train in the world, the longest route in the world. But I chose not to actually take the Trans Siberian. So it's not actually a specific train. There are three different routes that you can do to sort of cover that journey. There's the, the Trans-Siberian, which goes from Moscow right across to Vladivostok mm-hmm. uh, in the far east of Russia. Then there's the Trans-Mongolian, which is the one that I took. So instead of ending up in Vladivostok, you dip down through Mongolia uh, and end up in, in Beijing as your as final destination. And then there's the Trans-Manchurian, where you also end up in Beijing, but you actually come through Manchuria rather than to Mongolia. Um, And uh, I think they take relative amounts. I think they take, yeah, more or less the same amount of time. Um, But the only reason I didn't take the Vladivostok Trans-Siberian was because once you get there, there's not really an onward route and you have to sort of, I guess you would have to come back. Back Uh, Backtrack, And most people just do it one way and then fly onto wherever they're going. And I I didn't want to take any planes. So, yeah, I took the Trans-Mongolian, which was, I think, in total about nine days. Um, and with this train, you have to you have to book each leg separately, and I, I didn't know that before I took it. And you have to name exactly which train you want to be on from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar and from Ulaanbaatar on to Beijing. And it's totally up to you where you break it up along the way because the train has, I think, between Moscow and Akutsk in Siberia, which is the first main big stop. There are about 80, 80 train stations in between over five days. And it's it's absolutely up to you. If you want to hop off in between an Ekaterinburg or anywhere closer to Irkutsk, you're, you're very welcome to do that. But obviously, because you're in a sleeper service, you have to sort of book those bits in between. But that, that five days was, was, I think, the longest I had on board any specific train. And it was certainly a very tough journey because at Siberia, you think of as being sort of blustering cold and icy, but it was around 38 degrees at that time in June. Mm. And it was excruciatingly hot on board, and the air conditioning didn't work, and so most people were just sort of wandering around in slides and vest tops, and you know eating ice creams and hanging out in the dining car, just drinking from about eight o'clock in the morning. Mm. And but it was it was a fascinating trip in terms of just understanding space and distance, and just getting to grips with that idea of traveling such a vast distance which if you flew, you would have absolutely no concept of where you were at any given time or what you're Mm -hmm. passing through. And for me, this it was one of the key journeys because it it really showed up bits of the world that you would never normally see. And you could stand in the window at 8 o'clock in the evening and see mists just swirling around you know, hour after hour of birch trees and pine, and you just, you would never see that. You would never drive through it. You could never drive through it because there are no roads that take you through there, which is which is actually why most Russians actually use the train as a domestic service. And it's funny thinking of, for us, the Trans-Siberian, as like a bucket list train. But for mm-hmm. most of the people that I met on board, uh, it was simply the only train that they could use to get anywhere, to visit family mm-hmm. or met a lawyer on board who had to use it every two weeks to go to court hearings, and and he just said, you know, this it's hilarious for us that you know people want to take this as a as a lifelong dream train, and he said it's so tedious for us, and there's nothing for us to do but just eat dried fish and mm-hmm. drink a few cans over four days to go and visit my mom or whatever, um, and 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 again, it was in, for me fascinating to hear that perspective on it that mm-hmm. you know. For one person, it's you know a lifetime dream, and for someone else, it's just a pain. And (laughs) it was it was it was amazing to, but it was so fascinating to meet the people on board. And I was very lucky that this lawyer that we met actually spoke. He was bilingual, and I could chat to him in English. And he would tell the other passengers why I was there and what I was doing. Because at the same time, I did I did meet sort of quite obvious level of hostility when I was on board. Because I was, I mean, my husband and I were the only people of color on board. And you could tell that people were just a bit uncertain as to why we were there and what we Mm -hmm. were doing. But once he'd said, you know, this is their travel writer. she's traveling across here, this is what she's doing. They were very sweet and they, you know, invited us to sit in their compartments, they shared their food, they played cards with us. And, And often you don't need to speak the same language as other people because you still have this, you know, innate human level with which you can interact and you can still play cards and you can still share pancakes and listen to music and, and enjoy each other's company without having to be completely 100% sure about what you're discussing. Right. And it was it was a, it was was an amazing journey for me because once we'd sort of got across that first five days, then made it across to Mongolia, and then finally two days later to Beijing, that, that feeling of having boarded a train in London and set off and got off in Beijing and not left the rails the whole time. I mean, certainly not to fly or to you know take buses or cars or anything to know that you could actually be overland all the way was was quite something and Mm -hmm. it really makes you think about just just a spatial awareness of you know watching from a window and seeing the world change in that way um and, and change so gradually and i think when you when you fly you you're literally parachuted up from one place and dropped into another and you have no concept of what the you know the the landscape looks like how the topography is changing how people's faces change and it's also gradual it's really nuanced it's really gentle like undulating kind of changes which you don't realize and when you sort kind of hear people's language when you leave one place and it only changes very gradually along the way until you arrive in China but this way you could actually see things changing bit by bit you could see currency kind of starting to change a bit and then when you cross the border some of the food was still similar on one side but it was a little bit spicy or you know there's a bit of you know cabbage and kimchi now in, in the noodles and as you move towards Mongolia the meat started to be a bit more you know different but it's still very Russian dumplings that you were eating mm-hmm. and just watching the way everything kind of melded together and then finally pull apart and you end up in China, you realise how similar people are um and, and that, you know, we're always looking at the differences when actually we're we're very, very similar as people across the board and you see that actually everybody really wants the same thing. And we're all only after, you know, roof over our heads and just being happy and getting from A to B and, and we're not quite as different as I think people people we set out to look for that. And it's it's a great strange journey if you want to sort of get an idea. That's a it's almost like Middle Earth. Um, <laughs> to be able to see that from a train window at that ground level is something I would absolutely recommend to everybody to do one day.
0: That's a lovely uh description of you know, the benefits and joys and the pleasures of traveling overland by rail. Um, and I don't think you'll, yeah. you'll find a better one than that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. And, and this idea of, um, understanding this cosmopolitan idea of common humanity through the, the, the gradations of, of change, um, that you see yeah. over land. I think that's, that, that's just, a, you know, beautifully, beautifully said. I, I think that's just a wonderful place to, to, to end uh, the conversation. Um, I guess if you don't mind, if I can ask you one more general question, um,
1: yeah,
0: absolutely. So, you know, apart from what you've just said about traveling overland, perhaps traveling slowly, um, what um what advice would you give to uh, a young traveler who is looking to not just do the the typical kind of tourist route but actually wants to have uh, a transformative experience by that. Do you have any uh, tips that come to mind? Um, yeah,
1: just step outside your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most important things that I learned. And I, and I, you know, even though I've traveled a lot, I certainly pushed myself on this trip to do things that I wouldn't normally have felt I'd be happy to do. Because um, it's only when you do that, do you realize that you have so much more in you and capability than you then you realize, and you know, if you're nervous about going out in the evening to a restaurant where you don't know anybody, just go and do it because you never know who you're going to meet and you never know what you're going to discover. Um, And invariably, it's it's when you're really sort of apprehensive about something that you will find the most kind of transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And don't be... Also, don't be afraid to travel the way that you feel most comfortable uh, as well, you know, on the other hand, because I think people... There's a there's a real kind of traveller one-upmanship that you constantly come across, of you know, I travelled in this terrible compartment, mm-hmm. oh, well, mine was much worse, and you know I was more uncomfortable. And you know, but it doesn't matter if you feel better in a slightly nicer hostel or in a private room, or that's fine. It's totally fine. You don't have to prove anything to anybody, least of all yourself. And. If you want to travel in second class or first class, and that just makes it more enjoyable for yourself, do it. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. But equally, if you do step outside your comfort zone, you might be really pleasantly surprised by what you find. Um, and I think just not worrying about what other people think is is a really important thing as well. Um, and if you're not, you're just not someone who's comfortable eating certain foods or you know trying certain drinks, or it, it's okay. It doesn't matter. And Another thing that I think really struck me was this kind of reluctance to admit being a tourist and wanting to only be a traveler. Mm-hmm. There, there really is no difference between the two. If you're a stranger in a country and you've never been there before and you're out with your backpack and you're looking at one, you are a tourist. And that, there's nothing shameful about being a tourist somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's more about your own behavior and how you choose to deal with the place that you've gone to and being aware of you know being in a new place and you're in someone else's country you're in someone else's city and that's the most important thing i would say when you travel be really conscious of where you are and observe just don't talk too much and you pick <laughs> up a hell of a lot more i think it's often if you if you new and somewhere new if you don't talk too much and you just listen and you try and draw in as much as you can you'll get a much better feel for a place very quickly um and, and I think you'll find you you find your feet much better, and get a good understanding of you know what you're going to face and what it's going to be like. Um, and 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 just you know talk to people, just talk to people as much as you can, um, and find out from people on the ground. That's, that's the best way to do it. Um, you know you don't have to listen to other travellers and take traveller advice all the time. You can always you know even go on read blogs from local people, um, follow local people on Instagram or Twitter and find out where they eat and what they do and where they go out. And, and you'll often find that's a nice way of having, you know, this, this authentic experiences that people look for when they go traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a good way to find your feed. But most of all, travel. Absolutely do it. Just go. If you've scraped together enough money and, and you can manage it, just, just go because you will never, ever regret traveling. You'll regret not travelling. Right. But you definitely won't regret doing it.
0: Beautifully said. You should you should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us and uh, for your time. I know we had uh, a bit difficulties uh, with the scheduling, but um, you know, thanks for oh
1: no, we finally got there. I'm really glad that we managed to do it. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me
0: on. Okay, um, can you just uh, let everyone know where where, uh, we can find you online, just in case we want to reach out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My, my website is 80trains.com, which, which is quite easy to find. Um, and I'm on Twitter, Manisha underscore Rajesh. And I'm on Instagram with the same handle um, and very easy to find. Um, and always very willing to offer, you know, train advice or travel advice in general. So if people want to email me, they can contact me through the website. And, uh, and I always respond personally to to any mail. So, um, yes, so, so do feel free to get in touch
0: good deal well we'll put all of those links in the show notes and uh well thank you. thank you thank you so much and hope you have a nice weekend
1: yeah thank you so much as well thank you
0: mm-hmm. talk to you later
1: Take Bye. Bye.
0: i hope you enjoyed this episode of all over the place don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. Links can be found at allovertheplacepodcast.com.